Promise no promises. Women in motion. When we talk about performance, we most often first conjure some singular body in motion and that body's consciousness of its movement. We see and are ourselves conscious of some skin, some limbs, some style, some blur of movement, at once artificial and authentic, of performance and performativity itself. But bodies performing are not bodies alone. For who do they perform for and who with? The fourth Master Symposium in the series Women in the Arts and Leadership on October 7th and 8th, 2020 at the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel was dedicated to ideas and iterations of performance and to the way in which its embodied practices, its bodies, are often framed or received by narrow notions, not only of gender, race, class, geography, technology and temporality, but of what performance itself means and entails. A body in motion, for example. Whose body, though? And what kind of movement? Movement, indeed, is always both, suggesting something singular, a body in tender, private effort, and something collective. Presence, proximity, voice, movement, and performative relations are the tools by which many contemporary artists in unprecedented ways continue to explore how to create equitable space for our ever-regulated, duly delimited bodies. This symposium serves those practices, examining how performances has become the means by which so many artists and thinkers reflect on and denounce political systems that foster inequity, violence, and binary relations at their core. Our various guests made explicit this set of relations. Between singularity and collectivity, authenticity and performativity, a language of narrativity, both visual and linguistic, movement both, physical and intellectual. The complicated desire to perform for others and with others, and to read such performances correctly, was a recurring idea and impulse of the Women in Motion Symposium as it continued with performances, conversations, screenings and readings by artists, thinkers, poets, filmmakers, composers and teachers. performers all, including Kat Anderson, Julieta Aranda, Barbara Casavecchia, Mayra Rodriguez-Castro, Pande Jing, Dorota Gaveda and Egle Kulpo-Kaite, Ingela Iermann, Pauline Curnier-Jardin, Banu Kapil, Lynn Kwasi, Isabel Lewis, Tessa Mars, Sonia Fernandez-Pan, Sadie Plant, and Martina-Sophie Wildberger. Social Tools Featuring Isabel Lewis, Lynn Kwasi and Sadie Plant. I think um, I'm very much, um, let's say, very committed or deeply committed to this kind of enacting and practicing towards 
a future, a different kind of future, a more equitable future. Um, my, it's my feeling that, that we cannot, um, that it's actually only through practice that we can, you know, it's one thing, of course, there's the practice of speculation, the, the practice of dreaming it, um, but we also need to find these ways that practices which are close to the body or that are done with the body. So it was coming to mind, um, you know, Sarah Ahmed thinking through the skin, Merleau-Ponty's idea of the flesh as this mediation between inside and outside, this like complicating actually of these notions that now, just now, um, Sadie, you were talking about this. It's not that cut and dry, the outside and the inside. So then we need tools for thinking and for, for doing that, that complicate those boundaries and that, that kind of blur these polarities and these binaries. Um, and I always found that dance and movement actually were, were these kind of maybe the most excellent ways of, like the body can hold this complexity and contradiction that actually our systems of logic and sort of Western rationality cannot abide, you know, you sort of always end on, on, on kind of proving or false or proving true one side or another, but in our lived experience, we know that the body it can, can hold uh, these complexities that are way beyond um, binary thinking systems and thought systems. So for me, that, that, um, that sense of, of dance movement, like working with the body as um, a form of um, activism par, par excellence, really, because it it, it manages or it, you you can in this way um, deal with this complexity and to get these very different and multiplicitous points of view on something. It can really extend your thinking way beyond these those patterns of thoughts or habit of thought that we're educated in. Mm -hmm. And there's all that spills outside of that, and we all know it because we feel it every every day and in a kind of very common ways, um, but to really uh, work on and find find like nuanced forms of um, attending to all that spills out from these polarities is is something that that dance absolutely can do and composition can do um, and format. I think this is where my work specifically or my focus on a format is so urgent for me. Why it's so deeply political to say, okay, what is the format that I'm inhabiting at any particular moment? And could it be otherwise? And what might it look like if it were? So it's not enough for me to think that thought. I then feel it's my responsibility to, to actually try to model that in some way and act it um, and actually test it out or try it out. So much of um, the work I do, I cannot know, you know, there's only so much I can develop inside of my studio alone. And the next moment I need to open the doors or invite people into a situation to see and to learn about sort of what happens there. So this this enacting, this practicing, and this this experimentation that actually happens on the level of like actual bodies, actual people, and actual time, um, I think cannot be really underestimated. Really agree with you. I think that you know that's the beauty of making work, isn't it? Of 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 the you know as I said before, the the work of art. You know this. That's where the artist has the edge over the philosopher every time. I'm going to be on the contra here. I think underestimated or 
appreciation of the work, I think there is nothing romantic about it, meaning mm -hmm. that's not really a question of valuing or not. It's a question, and you were saying in your lecture, that these people were pointing towards um, an idea of intelligence, and mm -hmm. then that reality would be surpassed by an intelligence, and this intelligence would have its own logic. But they have been colonizing intelligence for their own sake. Mm -hmm. I think there is really, and of course, in women's studies and uh, in many other disciplines, everyone is talking and trying to come to terms with a very complex and let's say multi-angle idea of what intelligence is and how it actually um, is shared in really complex ways. And they try to just, they, they pick it up, they reduce it, they illustrate it, and they make it travel. So in that sense, they are marketers of, of what, something that they stole because it's not what's meant. Or let's say, I don't want to value anything it's just that it has a reality, meaning experience is something that art knows about because there is centuries of actually dealing with experience. And there is an incredible knowledge, which is a material knowledge, if you want. It's something that is tangible, that we can express in so many ways and we can even prove. And therefore, uh, art is not a question of taste. It's a question of reintroducing the importance of enacting experience in so many ways that may help the workers, the activists, the social, the rights, the justice, to actually have a right form deployed of violence. So that we can surpass the, the moment where we need to fight and we can be together because it's oriented towards the possibility of coexistence. And that's for me the most important and radical value of art and the work of art. I think the work of labor is a production of something tangible and the coexistence of these worlds together probably makes um, the interest, but if I need to get you know, if I need to be without one, then I can easily imagine the world without labor, but I cannot imagine the world without art. That makes me think of sort of the, maybe the, the problematic is perhaps in this only qualitative, or excuse me, only quantitative forms of addressing the world and understanding the world. Like if we can quantify it all, then we can think that we can produce this particular kind of intelligence that again is based on some kind of algorithmic, numeric, mathematical system. But what about the qualitative? And I guess for me that is what art can do, what literature can do, what poetry can do. It sort of helps us to, or it can, it can kind of attune us to all the, the qualitative, which we're actually tuned into all the time. Right now we are smelling something, even if I did not bring a, a scent from Cecil Tolas, like one of the artists that I and that I work with, um, that we work to sort of affect the the spaces of the senses to address all of the senses. Our senses are addressed all the time, but there's a degree to which we are not tuned into that. We're not attuned. This is why, for me, this kind of rehabilitation of the sensorium, the human sensorium, is so vital because it brings us maybe towards. And it's not that there never was. There have been also systems of thinking and practices in medieval Europe, like exactly here, that were, you know, not that we, I don't want to sort of throw us back into that time. I want us to be here and happily we're here. Um, but this, these qualitative modes of understanding the world that were so aggressively sort of um, killed or, or, or were attempted to be uh, killed off by Inquisition, um, Puritanism, you know, the, the rise of the scientific worldview, all of these things kind of decimate this um, 
articulation, let's say, a nuanced understandings of the qualitative. So it's always my question, like, what might be a contemporary way or contemporary ways of um, gathering and developing um, qualitative understandings of the world in a, in a place where sort of in every direction um, we're looking at the quantitative for um, making our value systems and for supporting these particular value systems around finance and capital. I think it's interesting too that both your practice and Lynn's as well is, I mean, pretty much all the artists I think actually that are involved in the next few days, there is this mode of like re-emphasizing and reinserting the social. So the social becomes also like the place of performance, you know, when we often visualize performance, like I think in a, in like the most kind of cliched way, we often like kind of see a singular body in movement. And I think like this in some ways also was what this title of the symposium was playing with. But actually all the work today that we saw was about, was about emphasizing the social, emphasizing this kind of connection. And you mentioned Isabel before, um, uh, Sarah Ahmed, and I was thinking again about this idea of hers of skin tight politics, you know, where there is like the skin, but as you said, it's porous, like it's constantly in conversation with other bodies. Um, and Lynn, I just wanted to ask you, you know, about, uh, about w when you were saying earlier, you said something about how you don't, you don't even, you said something, I don't know, maybe I'm paraphrasing it wrong, but that you, that you don't just sort of like, you're not just making works, that you're just sort of living, and in that process, these projects are coming out, and in the projects that we saw, they were very, they were, you know, you were inviting friends to sort of collaborate, to show in the space with you, you were having the anti-racism workshop. For you, how important is, like, is placing, like, kind of the social and the collective at the center, or does it just kind of come without, um, I don't know, without even knowing somehow. I mean, I also, yeah, I don't really plan things. It's more like that I do things and then afterwards I think about them. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's the but right order. <laughs> 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 but what I thought earlier is like, I divide between an activist and practice and the political practice. I think that's also important in a way um, when we think about doing things actually. Um, I actually think dreaming is also doing something. So yeah, for me, for I think my artistic practice isn't activist actually, but is political. Yeah, I mean, I also, you know, just back on my speculative <laughs> problem for a moment, I, 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 you know, I've got nothing, I don't wish to say anything against dreaming. I, I, I just <laughs> want, to, in fact, to, to rescue dreaming from its association with this kind of speculative thinking. You know what I mean? That's the, uh, because, yes, I think it's absolutely crucial, you know, fantasy fiction, dreams, utopias. I mean, really, all of it. We need all of that, you know, and I would say that's not speculative in the sense that I'm using this term. But I also think the way, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, we're going to keep going over this and over and mm. over, but also if we think about the way that speculative realism mm. and the word 
the speculative mm. has been sort of what, maybe less now, but for some years, mm. really kind of appropriated, embraced by the art world. Mm. Those artists that were appropriating, embracing it, were actually the materiality of their works, were the materiality of global labor production. Mm. You know, it was a certain kind of plastic, it was a certain kind of liquid, it was a certain kind of images and objects that we saw again and again, and those were standing for a kind mm. of speculative thought. Mm -hmm. And yet they were the, they were the the sort of products and the byproducts of the global labor chain, which was like you know cr like based on total violence and equity. So mm -hmm. this out this kind of material and immaterial, mm -hmm. you know, the speculative and the labor. Somehow the art world managed to, <laughs> to bring them <laughs> to together. put them together yeah. in this very yeah. um, in this very strange way, which mm -hmm. actually. You know, I was at. I went probably to so many for a while. These, uh, like, also these conferences were, where it was always a speculative realist philosopher mm. who was invited, mm. and no one. There was never any. No one ever kind of pointed out this disjunction. Mm. You know, between like the laboring body, the global laboring body, and the products that they mm -hmm. produced, and then sp and speculative thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, in which the body disappears. I think there is a reason for it, and I think that. We are kind of going around it, and the reason is that they are haters of expression. I think they really want and they succeed in taking expression out of the machine. I think they really want to distillate it to logic and go back to the idea that logic is a force. Being it a force, it affects, and therefore you can really, as you said, you can just step uh, back and say, that's how the force, that's you know, that's physics. Mm -hmm. And I would say, no, let's bring back quantum physics because mm -hmm. at least there is entanglement. And then in the togetherness of the interconnection and interconnectivity that can, does not allow you to separate, there is also expression mm -hmm. because it's very difficult to think about that image without actually um, bringing expression into it. And that's exactly what it's very dangerous for them. Like the floor is full of feelings and expression. And that's exactly what you need to remove. Otherwise, you can really not do the job. So still, it goes back to very, very dialectical separations in between true forces that they have through logics, and then expressions that are motivated by our little hearts and our wishes that the world would be better. And then we just try to, you know, like, and it's so interesting because we are talking about that, but I think it's not only that we want to influence the social, I would say that, um, or my major motivation is that I'm learning from artists involved in performance how actually uh, technology could perform otherwise. So I am actually uh, thinking more and more in our relationship with scientists that they want from us also some sort of exercises in order to reprogram or let's say to go into a different uh, behavior and a different habitus, going back to this morning, about certain things that we perform. I think it's not that technology, the acceleration is just speed up, because if you speed up, you know, you kind of don't see the processes going on. And that's exactly, it's a metaphor to just blind and render the process blind. Why? Because it's gonna be pain, and it's gonna be blood, and they want it. So it's a way of, of going back to the old metaphor of neutrality. They call it speed, but it could be white cube as Ling was putting it this morning. So it's very interesting how language is also producing an image that, that kind of, you know, uh, seduces us. And, and it's 
or for me, I think their major enemy is exactly what we are offering again and again, making certain parts of our social body really very uncomfortable because of that introduction of, yeah, of the feeling, of the emotion, of the expression, of things that actually feel and want something else. And uh, yeah, that makes it very difficult for philosophers that level, which is a quite low level, I must say. It brings to mind, um, like to reference Donna Haraway again, like what she says about the tool and tool use and how humans, um, since the beginning of our genus, we've always actually made ourselves in relation to the world through the use of tools and the tool mediates our relation with the world. Um, and she kind of says, like, you know, we can make the mistake of focusing on the tool, which is exactly what we do. We fetishize the technology, and this is to me what happens also with this speculative thinking is a fetishization of the systems of, of capital and everything. It kind of becomes um, sexy or glossy, and we, we are overly focused on that. She says, or we could remember that the tool actually always leads us back to the body. So technolo technology always leads us back to the ones employing it as that, that mediator, that way of mediating our human relation to the world, which is part of what makes us what we are as humans. So it's never um, a technology or human question. It's like we are, we make one another in that sense, or we are, we are one in that sense with, with the things, with the tools with which we mediate the world. And so I love that reminder to, to um, because I work a lot as well with, with technology, as you're saying, like how, how choose, like how we can, um, yeah, it's not about um, denouncing the technology, but rather what is, uh, what are alternative ways of using otherwise or thinking otherwise with it's interesting mm -hmm. what you said about language as a technology because one of the things I noticed today is that you started with this, Isabel, where you said when you were sort of narrating your 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 early education as a kind of parable, <laughs> which was quite beautiful, um, you said, you know, she was always between like the library and the club or the library and the studio. Or there was like this there was this movement between like the kind of textual language based knowledge and then like the kind of embodied practice of like technology and going on dancing and all sorts. And I actually was thinking through that binary all day in all the presentations because everyone here probably also because of the format of symposium. Symposium is about like speaking, it's about gathering knowledge, it's about speaking together. Everybody was also moving between this kind of, um, like almost like this essayism, and then also this image making and world making in terms of like moving images and images and dancing. Um, and I sort of want, I wondered about that if this is, um, since you, you both are here right now, uh, Lynn and Isabel, like if this movement between uh, say the library and the technical studio is, is like a binary you think about or if it, or if it is like one circuit, you know, if, um, or if you need one in order to do the other or if there's no separation for you. I don't know, that, that image just really struck me. It's like going across a campus, you know what I mean? Out of one institution and into the other and then back. Or um, for me, it was exactly that. Like on, they were on opposite sides of campus. <laughs> I can see uh, it. The, where I was studying literature in the library, completely opposite side of the campus as uh, the dance studio. So it was this very, you know, it was a walk that I would have, and that that walk was itself a movement. And I was very aware of that that movement, and I needed that. I was happy that the, there was this like, distance between, because there would mm -hmm. always be this sort of digestion process between, like that was going both ways. I think. I think in actuality, 
I think this this you know starts sort of much earlier for me to be something very integrated somehow. I always had a love of literature and love of books um, from a very young age, and and then and but this was just as much. It was a constant part of my life, just in the way that dancing was too. So I think. <clears throat> In order to bring it to language, it uh, becomes kind of, a, or it can be a kind of useful uh, technology, one would say. It can be a useful technology, but it can also be a trap to, to, to kind of overly emphasize, I would say, these, these as, as separate processes. And um, yeah, something that maybe I said in the conversation with Sonia was uh, kind of, for myself also, you know about the about eyesight and also the and that the thinking process. Just remembering that it's all it's all bodily. It all comes from from this first, and uh, or it it all is an aspect of that. And um, it kind of brings me to to also. I've just recently kind of finished this "How Forests Think" um, by Eduardo Cohn, and he's talking about um, that sort of the the, the basis or sort of what makes us, what, like all living things have these, are semiotic, it's sort of se the se semiosis kind of constitutes us, this response, this kind of, in a way it's a call and response, adaptation and counter adaptation, that these processes are um, semiotic, that that goes beyond um, logic systems and beyond uh, symbolic thought, which is specific to humans, but actually applies to, to all life. So I tend to kind of think about it in a more integrated way, um, even if um, I can employ that technology of the separation of them as a kind of a tool or an imagery to then um, create yeah, a like to bring loop them spin. Yeah, yeah, exactly, to bring them to spin. But it's different to kind of, I don't know, there was like this, um, and maybe again it was because of the format, but I don't think it was just that. There was like an ad academic tenor, and then there was also like the like the the performance artist, the making of images, the making worlds, the embodying, the performing, but there was also this like constant pulling from, you know, of reference, of a, and of a certain like register of reference too. And um, I don't, I don't always see that. I don't know what you think, but I don't always see that in a kind of, um, in a setting that's devoted to the performance, you yeah. know? Yeah, it's striking. But I also thought that it was kind of, you know, because in a presentation or in a situation like that, and you feel like disclosing a little bit like the sources, but also even if the sources, as Lin is saying, is part of the work anyhow, but then you start like seeing things like, as Sonia is saying, you start, you st in perception you order, but mm -hmm. they were never ordered. Yeah. And I think that's important to keep in mind. I would just open the floor if there is any questions from you. I'd like to know, um, in the context of what uh, has been said today, like performance, body, the social, um, there's one term that uh, always crosses my mind and I would be interested to hear your thoughts about it, about vulnerability, which I think is very, very interesting to hear what, um, yeah, what's, um, what do you think about that in terms of your practice or your thinking? Or as also as a way of practice or counter practice to the mechanisms and um, forces that we all are facing at the moment. Definitely something about putting oneself in the public in 
eye is is it, it's it's a very vulnerable thing, and I think there's there's modes and ways of trying to mask that vulnerability um, or to to make oneself invulnerable. I think these are all of these kind of modes that that we know and we could attribute to a certain um, historical formation of the the public figure or the the citizen um, based on a white male standard and so on um, I think that there's there's mm, I don't want to kind of fetishize the the vulnerability or something but but I do think it's somehow important to me that it that it shows in in the work somehow. I think there, there's some something about the way that that perhaps opens an, an invitation um, to actually um, relating to one another and sort of identifying. Let's say my public being able to hopefully identify and not only see me as this othered performer. And if, and I I guess I play with that and complicate that inviting the gaze uh, to my being and sort of playing with like the, the exotic or the potential of, of that, the way that I'm seen um, in a society that I live with, but then also kind of twisting that and, and hopefully by, by sharing uh, some of that vulnerability also invite this, this moment where, where that otherness is bridged by a certain way of um, actually maybe relating or being able to to um, see oneself in my position or in, in the, like a shared, uh, let's say, towards communion, I guess is sort of, um, so I guess it's, it's there. It's, it's not something that, I, that you have to work with to create. It's there that I, my voice is shaky, that I'm nervous, that my hands are sweating. Um, it's just um, as it's a, a question of, yeah, how much do you uh, reveal that or let that be seen or how, how much do you show it um, or share it, and how much do you hide it? Because we're always vulnerable, I guess. I'm actually not very interested in my own vulnerability. I'm much more interested in like white fragility, which is a really uh, important turn to me. Um, but one could also say white vulnerability. Um, I think this is like, yeah, like one main thing I'm interested in at the moment. And back to the psychological session, um, one concerning vulnerability, you also have to think about intimacy, I think. And I guess intimacy is when everybody in the room can show their own vulnerabilities, then you can have an intimate conversation or whatever. And I think this is like really important um, when we talk about racism or sexism or whatever. Yeah, I think yeah. sometimes like like when we when we talk about sort of oppressive systems of racism and sexism, there's this like maybe sometimes this conflation with like uh, vulnerability. Uh, fragility and innocence, you know, and there's that famous quote by, I think it's James Baldwin, where he talks about basically the violence of these oppressive systems, and the most violent part of it is that the people who are oppressing assert their own innocence, and that innocence is the most violent part. They, they don't get innocence too. You don't get to be violent and still be innocent or still be fragile. Um, and, yeah, I think this is, it, yeah, it's a super interesting 
question, and um, and it also I was thinking back to also the the quote earlier today that I cited from from that the Claudia Rankine book Citizen, where she's going back to this uh, moment that's now become eulogized because people quote it over and over. But it is quite amazing with Judith Butler, where someone asked them in a class about vulnerability, and she's talking about it in terms of language, like to be spoken to is to be made vulnerable to the other, to be addressed, you know, and that we're all, we're all addressed before we can speak. So we're all spoken to before we can ever speak as a child. And that this power relationship repeats itself later in life in other kinds of systems. And I think this is uh, so interesting to think about also today because everybody is putting themselves in positions of, um, of both like sh showing strength, but also complete vulnerability. And sometimes performance, because it's embodied, seems predicated on that. Like as you said, it's like, how do you, how do you hold your vulnerability? How do you manifest it? How do you use it? You know? Um, how do other people use it against you? How do you use it with them? It's, these are all questions. I mean, like Lynn, I, I would like to put it more on a, a political level, really. You know, mm -hmm. I kind of imagine my my uh, fantasy speculative <laughs> trader. <laughs> I mean, what what's the goal for all this accumulation? You know, it is kind of security, isn't it? It's uh, it's to, to you trade the securities to get security. Ideally, you have your your big villa, your gated community. You know, you you try to. You, you want security for all the talk of risk and adventure. It's actually a kind of quest for security for the kind of 1%, if you like. Um, and the vulnerability that counts really is, is, is the precariousness of the situation of the 99% from which the wealth is taken. going to be my first question after COVID in a public place, so I'm a little bit like, woo. Um, <laughs> I'd like to direct this one to Sadie, and thank you for your words today. Um, but I was wondering if you would like to reflect upon the movement Extinction Rebellion in relation to some of the um, ideas that you were discussing today, like, for example, the leftist part of accelerationism in relation to also like thinking big or like thinking in big terms. Because mm. um, I'm aware that a lot of the people or say the representants from the movement, they um, situate themselves beyond politics mm -hmm. because of their ecological concerns. They think of like ecology and the environment as something bigger than politics, um, and I was wondering if you could like draw some connections in mm -hmm. between, or if, or if there is not, like I'm wondering myself. This, this interest in extinction uh, in itself, um, yeah, I'm not, I probably, that would be my misgiving with uh, Extinction Rebellion as a, as a movement, although actually more and more I, find myself very sympathetic to the general drift of things. But nevertheless, this, I, this idea of extinction as a kind of, or at least it carries the connotations as uh, of this kind of apocalyptic one-off event. You know? And I'm sure that you know, even if that's not quite what's intended, that is, you know, I mean, that's how it, it, that's the beauty of the slogans, 
is that it does really provide a jolt. It's an end. You know, it really could end. You know, it's, it's obviously it's very effective in one sense. But I also feel it's, a, you know, isn't there a risk that it's a bit of an easy way out of the problem again? <laughs> Perhaps a bit like this speculative thinking. You know, if you... I mean, I, I, yeah, my daughter said to me the other day, well, I don't have a problem if we're all extinct. That's, you know, that's okay. We've had our time. That's, you know, that's fine. And I did try to say to her, you know, if it was just like, okay, now we go to sleep, you know, or you die, yeah, okay. But, I mean, the reality, again, as I said before with the Don Haraway thing, how do we get from here to there? You know, it's not just one big apocalyptic event coming. You know, this is something you could probably even celebrate, actually, in a certain way. But in fact, it's a long, slow, discontinuous, very unevenly distributed, painful series of processes we're looking at, isn't it? You know, and that kind of, again, comes back to the same feeling that there is therefore this very careful and complicated work to be done to intervene here, you know, it's not just to stop an event, you know, which would be relatively easy, or at least it's relatively easy to think about that. You know, there's this lovely, of course, this classic quote from Frederick Jameson, you know, that started a lot of things off, I think, especially for Mark Fisher to mention him again, this, this idea where Jameson says, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And, uh, you know, of course, when he said that, he, he obviously chose the end of the world because he wanted to, to, to choose something which was like almost impossible to think about. You know, that's the whole point of the construction of this kind of sentence, isn't it? You know, it's like it's to say it's so hard to imagine capitalism. It would be easier to think about the impossible. But in fact, you know, it's almost now we kind of implicitly use this kind of phrase. It's almost like we've taken the invitation. You know, we think, okay, well, yeah, let's imagine the end of the world then, if that's easier, you know? Because the work of, you know, the end of capitalism or the end of the processes that in fact lead to the end of the world would be so much harder, so much more complicated. You know, we feel we, we don't have the in, even the intellectual... Uh, tools to push for it, or, you know, where is the movement, where is the, you know, future proletariat, or where is the active agency, you know, it, it, you can have this kind of sense of total vacuity, really, where there were once these terms and things to rely on, and, yeah, in that sense, extinction and even a rebellion against it maybe you know, seem, again, a bit too speculative to me. I was thinking in terms of the performance that Dorota and Egley will give and the lecture by Sadie Plant and the film by Kat Anderson. I thought I would read a very short excerpt um, from a new book that has just come out this month. It was written by a young curator and writer in New York named Legacy Russell, and it's called Glitch Feminism, a Manifesto. And basically what she's doing is she's theorizing the glitch um, to talk about um, subverting or going beyond binary relations, both online and off, and that the glitch, this kind of endless buffering, um, holds also endless opportunities um, for avatars, for self-transformation, for the fact of not performing um, for a system that would not 
um, that would oppress you, that would undercut you, um, that would make you labor ceaselessly forever with no uh, real outcome for oneself or for their own sort of sense of self or sense of transformation. And she's really drawing on a whole community of um, black and queer artists um, and poets. Actually, poets are incredibly important to this book. Filmmakers, uh, people working in so many different mediums, but for who uh, a kind of digital technology and a kind of digital life, again, both offline and online, um, is paramount in terms of their idea of themselves and their ideas as an artist and their ideas as like multiple selves and multiple artists. So I thought I would just begin by reading just a small excerpt from this where she's kind of defining this theory of hers. A glitch is an error, a mistake, a failure to function. Within technoculture, a glitch is part of machinic anxiety, an indicator of something having gone wrong. This built-in technological anxiety of something gone Gender is immediately identifiable as a core cog within this wheel. Gender has been used as a weapon against its own populace. The idea of body carries this weapon. Gender circumscribes the body, protects it from becoming limitless, from claiming the infinite vast, from realizing its true potential. We use body to give material form to an idea that has no form, an assemblage that is abstract. The concept of a body houses within it social, political, and cultural discourses, which change based on where the body is situated and how it is read. When we gender a body, we are making assumptions about the body's function, its socio-political condition, its fixity. When the body is determined as a male or female individual, the body performs gender as its score, guided by a set of rules and requirements that validate and verify the humanity of that individual, a body that pushes back at the application of pronouns or remains indecipherable within binary assignment is a body that refuses to perform the score. This non-performance is a glitch. This glitch is a form of refusal. Within glitch feminism, glitch is celebrated as a vehicle of refusal, a strategy of non-performance. This glitch aims to make abstract again that which has been forced into an uncomfortable and ill-defined material, the body. In glitch feminism, we look at the notion of glitch as error with its genesis in the realm of the machinic and the digital and consider how it can be reapplied to inform the way we see the AFK world, shaping how we might participate in it toward greater agency for and by ourselves. Deploying the internet as a creative material, glitch feminism looks first through the lens of artists who in their work and research offer solutions to this troubled material of the body. The process of becoming material surf night on the internet. The glitch acknowledges that gendered bodies are far from absolute, but rather an imaginary, manufactured and commodified for capital. The glitch is an activist prayer, a call to action, as we work towards fantastic failure, breaking free of an understanding of gender as something stationary. While we continue to navigate toward a more vast and abstract concept of gender, it must be said that at times it really does feel, paradoxically, as if all we have are the bodies we are housed in, gendered or otherwise. Under the sun of capitalism, we truly own little else 
And even so, we are often subject to a complicated choreography dictated by the complicated bureaucratic and rhizomatic systems of institutions. The brutality of this precarious state is particularly evident via the constant expectation that we as bodies reassert a gender performance that fits within a binary in order to comply with the prescriptions of the everyday. As political scientist and anthropologist James C. Scott writes, legibility becomes a condition of manipulation. These aggressions, marked as neutral in their banality, are indeed violent. Quotidian in nature, we find ourselves fending off the advances of binary gender as it winds its way through the basics of modern life, opening a bank account, applying for a passport, going to the bathroom. So what does it mean to dismantle gender? Such a program is a project of disarmament. It demands the end of our relationship with the social practice of the body as we know it. In his 1956 novel, Giovanni's Room, Writer and activist James Baldwin's protagonist, David, darkly muses, quote, it doesn't matter, it is only the body and it will soon be over. Through the application of the glitch, we ghost on the gendered body and accelerate towards its end. The infinite possibilities presented as a consequence of this allows for our exploration. We can disidentify and by disidentifying, we can make up our own rules in wrestling with the problem of the body. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, and Institut du Souche a joint venture with Krajina Kulcic and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch, that's dertank.ch, or request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch, that's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Institut du Souche is part of Museum Souche, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulcic. More information can be found on museumsouche.ch. That's museumsouche.ch. Moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. Research assistant Alice Wilke. Editing and voiceover Elena Cesar. Music Niklas Kammermeier. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Technical Support Konrad Siegel, Christina Pavlovich, Vitals Brun, Chris Handberg, Steven Schoch and Esther Hunziger. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut du Souche, Artstations Foundation CH 2021.